Welcome back to The Lighthouse Project. This podcast is presented to you by Children of Scientology, a collaborative effort which aims to be informative about the issues which have affected the youngest members of Scientology. Today, we welcome back and are excited to have Danny, my friend, joining us once again as co-host. Over the last couple of episodes, we've been discussing the testimony of Jane Doe II in the trial of Danny Masterson and trying to better understand her experience, what exactly she went through, what she was up against in her search for justice. We want to take this opportunity to say thank you to Jane Doe II for her courage, her persistence in pursuing her case with law enforcement and for bravely giving her testimony once again on the forcible rape that she experienced. Absolutely. It's been remarkable. Jane Doe II's, just her tenacity, all of them. Yeah. Yeah. To come back a second time, especially, is, mm-hmm. I don't know how they're doing it or how they, yeah. Thank you for having me back. I'm glad to be here with you. However, unfortunate the subject, so I'll pick up with where we left off. Danny Masterson overpowered his victims by causing them to ingest a substance which would incapacitate them so that the jury may hear facts about drugs used to facilitate sexual assault and understand more about their symptomology. The prosecution called Jennifer Ferenz, a criminologist at LAPD in forensic science toxicology. Ferenz has 15 years of experience in toxicology. Today, we'll be reading the transcript of her testimony provided by Tony Ortega at the underground bunker from his courtroom notes. Deputy DA Reinhold Mueller asks, are you aware of the drug scene and date rape drugs in the period of 2000 to 2005? Ferenc answers yes. Mueller, how? Ferenc, from reading published materials, the first literature about date rape drugs emerged in the late 90s and early 2000s. Mueller asks, in that period, what have been the most common date rape drugs on the scene? Ferenc replied, alcohol is consistently seen in drug-facilitated sexual assault cases. That period was driven heavily by the media, so there was focus on ketamine, rohypnol, GHB, and more attention disproportionate on that. But today, rohypnol is so hard to obtain, it's not seen in cases. Mueller Let's talk about GHB first. What is that? Ferenc, a compound naturally produced in the human body in low concentrations, but it can be used to produce a high, a euphoria and drunken feeling. Mueller, what are some of the most common symptoms with GHB? Ferenc replies, lower doses have that recreational abuse profile, euphoria, relaxation, and that high that a drug seeker might be looking for. Higher doses cause nausea, vomiting, lack of muscle control, dizziness, and at a high enough dose, they will be asleep, completely sedated and unwakeable. Mueller asked, respiratory suppression? Ferenc flies at high doses. Mueller, this was commonly used in clubs as well? Ferenc, there's evidence of that, yes. Mueller, street names? Ferenc, a lot. I'm not familiar with all of them. Mueller asked, how is it ingested? Ferenc, a white powder or as a liquid. Mueller, the form as a liquid or powder, are they easily mixed in drinks? Ferenc, as a liquid that is odorless and colorless, it was believed it could be easily put into a drink without the person's knowledge. The powder form would dissolve in a drink as well. Mueller, how long would you expect to see the effects? Ferenc replies, depends on how it's ingested. We assume orally. It would start having an effect within potentially 10 to 20 minutes, and the duration could last as long as six hours. And again, that's dose dependent. I was reading something recently, and it said basically... How offensive to call this date rape as if 
this was a date in a lot of cases. Both of my experiences were drug rape. There was no date involved. There was nothing consensual in any way about any of this. And I know that the same thing would apply to Miriam, Victoria, and Amanda. And we've all discussed our experiences. There was no date. So now yeah. it offends me when I hear date rape drug. It's drug rape, period. I agree. That's such a good point. That is a very good point. Mueller, can you tell us about Rohypnol? Forens, a prescription sleep aid that was available in the 1990s, only needed a small dose to take effect. Only a small dose was needed to provide six to eight hours of sleep. Mueller, what was the dosage form? Forens, either a one or a two milligram tablet. Mueller, can you tell us the symptoms? Forens, if ingested orally, it would take 20 to 30 minutes to take effect, and it's a sleep drug, so it would have an immediate effect on someone's muscle control, make them drowsy, and they would eventually fall into a deep sleep. It can also cause amnesia. So while it's active, their brain is not actively making memories, which is so interesting. So people are encountering memory loss. Mueller, would that be a blackout state? Forens, I would say that the person would be experiencing heavy sedation and the inability to form new memories. Mueller, could that person still be walking around and talking to people? Forens, depending on the dose, enough of a dose, they would appear to be unconscious. Mueller, if one were to be ingesting either GHB or Rohypnol mixed in an alcoholic drink, would there be a synergistic effect? Forens, yes, it's called an additive effect. Mueller asks about the drug overpowering the effects of the alcohol. Forens, in general, the drug with the higher potency will have a greater effect. Mueller, you have a 24-year-old female in 2001, had one or two glasses of wine at dinner, after dinner had gotten up and began to leave the restaurant, and that is her final memory until the afternoon of the next day. She had no medication or alcohol other than one or two glasses of wine. And the time from when she had the wine to getting up to leave was about an hour. She'd never had an effect like that. The effects that she was having the next day were inconsistent with the amount of wine that she had and no memory of what had occurred. Given that hypothetical, do you have an opinion that this would be consistent with alcohol alone? Forens. It's my opinion that symptomology is inconsistent with one or two glasses of wine taken over one hour. Mueller, next hypothetical, 28-year-old female in April 2003 was given a mixed drink of vodka and fruit punch. She indicated that the taste was very sweet. She drank only about a half of the glass, no prior alcohol that evening. Within 15 to 20 minutes, she began to feel a loss of her strength, slow and lightheaded. She got into a jacuzzi, not unusually hot in there for a short time and began to feel more symptoms, visual problems, could only hear and smell, felt nauseous, never felt that nauseous in her life. She said she could not breathe, couldn't get air, only the smallest breaths. These symptoms came on within no more than 30 minutes after the beverage. She had never had a reaction like that to any beverage, including vodka. Then she had instances of passing in and out of consciousness, memory fragments of the night before, do you have an opinion that this would be consistent with the alcohol alone? Forens, that symptomology is inconsistent with that amount of alcohol consumed. Mueller, lastly, assume a 23-year-old female has a few sips of vodka, perhaps a glass of wine. Later, she's given a glass of red wine, which she consumed. No prior medications. She began having flashes of visual to no visual to visual again. She described her vision being blurry, in and out of consciousness vague memory of certain moments, but described feeling very tired and out of it, and that her body and head felt very heavy. 
Given the symptoms, do you have an opinion that this would be consistent with the alcohol alone? Ferenz. Two total glasses of red wine are just the one. Mueller. Let's presume that there might have been more than one glass, no more than two. Ferenz. In general, the symptomology is less consistent than the amount of alcohol consumed. Mueller. Presume that this is hypothetical. She had never felt symptoms like that with any alcoholic beverage. Ferenz, yes, that symptomology is less consistent than the amount of alcohol consumed. I thought that her testimony was really great in identifying a few different types of drugs that are commonly used. This is a blind testimony, so she's just giving some broad facts. And it helps to understand what people can experience when this occurs. If anyone else has had some experiences that relate to this and they've wondered what that was, it does help to tie things together and understand, oh, okay, this is what happened. Yeah, I can't imagine being in that situation, hearing this described this way, how vulnerable and helpless that would feel. And if you're with one other person, you're relying on them because you probably think you're just getting sick in some way. You're not sure what's going on. Clearly, if this was a real medical situation causing these symptoms, that other person would take you to the doctor or call an ambulance. So to be in that situation and experience the loss of vision and to feel that sick, and I, I just can't imagine. Can I tell yeah. you what's an out point? I see an out point. Yes. No locational was given in any of these scenarios, which is interesting to me because that would have been, and yeah. it's still, I have admitted this to you guys before, that that's the one thing that I've used that's a Scientology process since leaving Scientology. But I have given myself with a locational when I'm drunk before. And I just note, no one gave a locational, not Danny. Not the other Scientologists at the parties. It's just odd to me. So for Scientologists, these assists are something that you learn very early on. All Scientologists would know these basic assists. And one of the most basic is the locational, which is look at that tree, look at that chair, look at that window or whatever it is. And it's to get the person's attention out in an exterior way. And it's the assist that is actually pinned as what you do when someone's drunk. So it's to get them out of that fog or whatever, that drunken state to sober them up. Yeah. For what Christy's saying, yeah. why wasn't that the go-to? I think in the party scenario, so Jane Doe one, for example, it was a party. And maybe people were drinking and that's not their first thing that they're going to think of either. But also to your point, Danny, you are reliant on the other person to help you in that scenario. You're physically breaking down and you're very vulnerable. With Jane Doe 1 in the party scenario, Danny was like, oh, don't worry, I've got her. I'm going to help her out. I'll get her up the stairs. And yeah, and to your point, Christy, we're like, no one was going, hang on, don't we do a locational? Yeah. So the two people that were repeatedly involved were Luke Watson and Danny Masterson. And so for me, at least yes. with Danny, it goes to intent. His intent was not yes. actually to get her back into present time, which is the goal of the locational. But Correct. It wasn't. It was the opposite. And that's quite a tell to me. And the other thing is she would never have expected something like this to happen with Scientologists. I completely agree. She would have felt that she was in a safe situation. Mm -hmm. She had friends around her. It's a very tight-knit social environment. And these are supposed to be the most ethical people, the most spiritually aware, and were the good of mankind and all this sort of thing. And as well, she didn't know that she was going to get taken down by a drug that she was not aware of. And so you can't see that coming. If you're just putting a drink to your lips, you're not assuming that next minute you're going to be near struggling for your life. She's made no risky choices. She's around friends. She's right. not drinking yep. excessively. She's done even nothing if, wrong. Yeah. Even if you've heard about the drugs 
you probably have the concept that this is something that happens in a club, at a rave, at a party where you don't know anyone. In the war world where the criminals are and the drug addict. And so also, as we heard friends say early on, she said that the literature that she has read is from the 90s to 2000 and on from there. So you have to understand that the earliest literature on this topic was in the 90s. That was not so easily accessible. Scientologists were not reading things in the media. Each of these Jane Doe's would have had very limited, if any, information about what this type of crime was about and how it was perpetrated. Even to this day, most people don't understand this crime. So back to the point of what you guys were making, I think, was that she wouldn't have felt that she was in any danger at all whatsoever. And... When you drug someone, it's the same thing as shooting someone with a tranquilizer dart. You're just taking them down. You're incapacitating them to where they cannot fend for themselves and they're completely vulnerable. And Danny Masterson, in Jane Doe One's case, he then took her up the stairs under this pretense of, I'm going to look after her. Don't worry. She's my friend. She's my buddy. I'll never do anything like that to her. And there were people protesting about it, saying, oh, no, I don't think you should. And he was like, no, I'll sort her out. So people then did step back. And yeah. yeah I didn't think about that. Uh, talking about a period of time where pre-smartphones, where the internet is in its early stages, and some of these people involved probably went to a Scientology school. So they would probably know a lot less about the dangers out there in the world like that. So you were either prevented from access to in theta, meaning negative things, which was stuff outside Scientology that was troublesome, problematic, crime-ridden, whatever, you were prevented from seeing that. Or there was so much stigma around it and it was frowned upon that you self-policed and didn't look at it. And these are all second gens we're talking about. I would also say that even if they knew, even if they knew anything about this drug rape information, they would not have expected that to come from Danny Masterson, their friend. Right. And in Jane Doe 2's case, she thought that this was like a date. So in that sense, it was more of a date rape kind of situation. But yeah, the thing is, at the end of the day, these are predators and they lure you into a false sense of security, a false sense of safety, and then they perpetrate their crime against you. So they are aware of the setup. You don't know that they have something that's going to be completely incapacitating for you in that drink that they're handing you. You don't know. They know everything. They know the setup and they know how to get you from that place to a location where they can then rape you. Even today, if I were at a party with friends and a friend handed me a drink, I wouldn't think twice. Yeah. You presume that you're in a safe environment. These were all scenarios where there was an illusion of safety, where safety should have been. Where safety was, apart from him, really. Apart from yes. him. This was, These were yeah. her peers. This was her community. They did look out for each other. They did care about each other, so long as you don't cross Scientology lines. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So what I was going to say is that, as friends said, alcohol on its own is the most commonly used. For this topic, we're diving into other substances that have been used and that continue to be used. That's where our focus is, but we do not discount the use of alcohol. What we want to do is basically talk about the scope of the crime and dive into it a little bit more. So let's start with rohypnol. Rohypnol is a benzodiazepine that was originally used as a sedative to treat severe insomnia and assist with anesthesia. 
And in the previous trial of Danny Masterson, which resulted in a hung jury and a mistrial, Trisha Vesey testified that she became incapacitated after Danny Masterson gave her a drink in 1996. Masterson gave her a flask to drink, and she did, although she couldn't recall him drinking. They went into her bedroom where she began to feel intoxicated, and she quickly became incoherent within 15 minutes. Now, incidentally, one of the side effects of Rohypnol is slurred speech. However, it's also important to say that other drugs which were available in 1996 can also have this effect, such as other benzodiazepines as well as GHB. In response to Rohypnol being used to facilitate sexual assaults, Congress passed the Drug-Induced Rape Prevention and Punishment Act, effective from October 13, 1996. The Drug-Induced Rape Prevention and Punishment Act of 1996 amends the Controlled Substances Act, CSA, to impose penalties of up to 20 years imprisonment and a fine for violating CSA provisions by distributing a controlled substance to an individual without that individual's knowledge with intent to commit a crime of violence, including rape, against such individual. And as Ferenz mentioned in her expert witness testimony, she said that today, Rohypnol is so hard to obtain, it's not seen in cases. Ferenz also talked about GHB, which is short for gamma hydroxybutyrate. GHB carries a high risk of death, and so harsh penalties were introduced for the possession of the substance. On February 14, 2000, a law in the U.S. was passed to ban the possession of GHB and placed in the same category as cocaine and heroin under the Controlled Substances Act. It's important to understand that as one particular drug becomes illegal, that it's not the end of the problem. Danny Masterson continued to drug and rape women after 2000. The forcible rapes charged in this trial are Jane Doe 3 in 2001, Jane Doe 1, and Jane Doe 2 in 2003. These things come into prevalence and then a law is enforced to curb it, to stop it. Now, we did see a big change with Rohypnol, so that's great. But GHB has continued to be used today. So even with what they enforced in the year 2000, and maybe that's because Rohypnol is actually a prescription, which is more controlled. So the Rohypnol being more regulated was easier to stamp out and then with GHB, it seems to have continued on, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't really matter about what drug because they just will use a different drug. The perpetrators of this crime will just select something else. Danny Masterson continued to drug and rape women after these laws were passed about these particular drugs. So what I want to say is that it's more about understanding the actual crime and preventing the perpetration of the crime. The fact is that there were many drugs which were available during the early 2000s when the incidents occurred in these cases, which would induce the symptoms as described by the Jane Doe's in this trial, and also which were described by Amanda, Victoria, Christie, and I from our own experiences, which we talked about in episode five of this podcast series. And that was when we were discussing the testimony of forensic psychologist Dr. Ziv. Some of the symptoms that we described, and also by the Jane Doe's, is this loss of motor control and coordination, reduced awareness, effects on eyesight and breathing, nausea, sedation, intermittent unconsciousness, and periods of complete amnesia. What we touched upon is where the memory stops being recorded, and that's mentioned in this testimony here as well by friends. The reason I'm mentioning that is because it's important to be aware 
that while a drug can take a certain period of time to take effect, so let's say that's 15 minutes, 20 minutes, or 30 minutes, depending on the type of drug, in particular drugs such as benzodiazepines, it can actually start erasing your memories from before you even took it. Terrifying. Yeah. Drugs have different effects, but it's important to understand that could also be part of the experience that your memory can be erased even from before you even took it. Yeah, like you don't remember who handed you the drink. You don't remember the nice guy that walked up and said, hey, can I buy you a glass of wine? It's very possible. It's scary. Yep, yep. The thing is that there's variations in the side effects that the chemicals in drugs produce. And then there are variations from person to person in our body and brain reactions to a drug. And this is why we've included all this information, this wide range of types of symptoms that can occur. And that's really important for victims to understand because I only came to know about Rohypnol because it was in the media. And that was years after I myself experienced drug rape. It was the word that was thrown around. Rohypnol and the way that's supposed to react in someone is different to what I experienced because Rohypnol tends to take a bit longer. The idea that I had what Rohypnol was didn't fit exactly into what I experienced where my memory went black from the moment I put that glass of drink to my lips. So why would it happen so quickly then? And I didn't understand. So that's why I'm really trying to clarify for people that there's lots of different types of effects. And I'm glad that information is being included in this trial so that we can understand what the victims went through in this trial, but also just as a way of being informative to other people that these are some of the things that can occur. Yeah, it's great. It's something that needs to be discussed more for certain. How incredible is it that we got to include this whole conversation in this trial, like as compared to the first trial where none of this could be discussed? It's just remarkable. That's such a good point, Christy. Yeah, absolutely. It's so important to the story of what happened. It's so important to their experience. And it's also important for other victims as well. Now, did anyone else that was present at a party, for example, be a witness to what had happened to the Jane Doe? Not in this trial. Not in this trial. So there's a witness. Damien Perkins came forward and He did an article with Tony Ortega at the Underground Bunker. I do recommend people reading that. Damian Perkins was the one that linked up two of the Jane Doe's because he was like, I knew that this had happened and then I heard that this had happened and linked it up. The thing is, he didn't witness the actual act occur. So we need to be very clear on that. And that's probably why he wasn't included in the trial. He was there when the event took place, but he did not witness it occurring. But his story is important. Yeah, it was because I was thinking about it from the perspective also of being a person witnessing what you might think is someone else that has been given a drug and recognizing those symptoms in someone else so that you can help them. I feel like there were plenty of other people at these parties at this situations that probably very well know, or at least now in hindsight know, as they're connecting these dots. And I'm so hopeful that as Danny Masterson is now a degraded being, I don't know what his status is. He's not an SP yet, but as we all believe, they're being careful through the next civil suit. It's like a chicken match to see who flips on who first or who doesn't, who supports who. But I'm so hopeful that other second, third gens will come forward as these bonds begin to break 
and be willing to share. And I'm hopeful that because there's a grand jury investigation going on with all the fair game stuff that maybe they get called as witnesses there because these people that the Jane Doe's went and told Lisa Presley, Rachel Smith, cousin Rachel went and told them some even right away, hey, this happened to me. And so far, that's all we have. Yeah. The thing is, as well, people who attended this party and the people that were in this social group, they were told pretty much from the next day that, oh, she had an ethics situation. She was drunk. She was this. She was that. And so they really preempted it. We're talking about Jane Doe One's case. Danny Masterson went to the president's office at CC the very next morning. They had already been preparing. The information gets sent out and the story that is being fed to them, they are going to believe that. Right. They chose to believe that. So even for Damian Perkins, he didn't immediately recognize, okay, this is exactly what happened. He observed some things take place in the event of how things transpired. And it wasn't until years later that he really connected the dots. And that's what, as Christy's saying, that's what we're hoping Mm -hmm. more will happen. And that's the reason why the Damien Perkins story is really important. It's such a tiny community. It's tiny. And people are talking. Someone knows something. Multiple people know something. And if not about one of the Jane Doe's, there probably are other incidents as well that those dots could be connected. Yeah, absolutely. And like Danny, you know as well yourself how many stories that we know where someone says something about someone. We're like, oh, yeah, I remember that story when I was 12 when I heard about such and such or whatever. We know about people. We know about things that happen to them. It's not enough to go to the police and file a police report. Certainly not. But we can connect up some stories and we hope that people talk to each other because then suddenly the whole picture exactly. comes together because each of us have a little bit of the information. Yep. And I know that within my own case, I've spoken to several people and I've been able to piece and pull more of a story together. So it is it's a- just like a puzzle. And I feel like the Lisa Presley role in this because she was dating, I think, or Luke Watson worked for her at the time, and I don't know what at what point they started dating, but she's got both sides of it. She's got from the Jane Doe sharing with her, and then she's got Luke Watson's perspective and information. And I believe that she was interviewed by the grand jury, so I'm super hopeful that something constructive comes out from her. Yep. One of the things I wanted to mention, we've talked about these more well-known drugs like Rohypnol and GHB that are used in this way, but it really could be anything that doles a person's awareness level that maybe disorientates them or sedates them. So even just... Even just lowering their inhibitions. um, That's all you have to do. Yes. So it could be any of those types of substances that have that effect. Drugs that are illegal, drugs that have heavy penalties that are in the same ranking as cocaine and heroin. For me, it's important to almost even push those aside and focus on what are the things that are more readily available, like alcohol, of course, being number one. But we absolutely need to include in that prescription medication. And Rohypnol was a prescription medication. American footballer Darren Sharper was convicted of drugging and raping women across the United States in several states and multiple women. And he used prescription medication such as Xanax. Ambien and Valium to commit his crimes. So I just really want to have that in the conversation where 
I feel like it more comes down to what's available. I think in Darren Sharper's case, it was available to him because he was getting pain medication. What I'm trying to say is that I don't believe that Danny Masterson would be trying to get some kind of drug that carries severe penalties for it when he can just get a packet of prescription medication and pop a couple of those into a drink. Do you get yeah. what I'm saying? That's where I'm trying to exactly. kind of go with that. Yeah. Yeah. Something that's more readily available, easily accessible, um, and that goes undetected, that is tasteless, odorless, doesn't make a significant color change or anything like that. Yeah. Oh, you just reminded me, wasn't there some kind of a thing where you could put it in your drink, like a test strip or something, and it would change color? There are I, multiple solutions yes. now that they're selling. Yeah. But I wonder which substances it actually detects, because that's what we're talking about is there's a wide variety of sleeping pills and other things. It seems to be a mixed bag of strips, solution, nail polish, coasters, drops, straws that change color. There's a lot of different things right. that you can use now, but they're not all effective on everything. And I doubt that right. they would be effective on these things she's talking about. That's it's what I was Xanax, getting at. Ambien, Valium, yeah. these anti-anxiety or whatever. Mm -hmm. I would yeah. hate for someone to rely on that when there's just so many substances that it, it might not be detecting. And the next thing that we're talking about here is this guy, Darren Sharper, there was a witness in one of the cases who was a bar manager, Tony Stafford. And he became concerned when he saw a woman with Darren Sharper that was stumbling around. And I feel like post my experience, I can tell you, if I see a woman that's stumbling, I'm like on red alert. Like it is the first thing I'm doing. I don't care if I know her. All of the bells and whistles are going off in my head. I'm going to go over there. Like, I want to know if she's got a ride home. I want to know if she wants me to right. take her home. It's incredible the feelings that come from the violation that we experience that now I want to do everything I can to prevent for the next person. Exactly. So the witness was a bar manager named Tony Stafford. And as you mentioned, he saw her stumbling with Sharper and was concerned he must have said something to Sharper because then Sharper said that the woman was okay and he was taking her back to his apartment. Now, he added there, she's on the potion. She's ready, Sharper reportedly told him. Later, Stafford said Sharper was going home with a zombie. So she's presenting in a manner that she's not fully there and he can see that's how he's describing her. And this came into play with Jane Doe 1, for example, where people were concerned and they were like, oh, we got to make sure she's okay. And the actual perpetrator was like, no, she's fine. I'm going to take her to safety. I'm going to be the one that's going to help her. So I'm just wondering, Christy, because in this case, Danny was her friend, right? Oh, I'm not going to do anything to her. She's my buddy. I wouldn't do anything like that. I'm going to look after her. Christy, then do you think that you would be able to override that if uh, someone's like, oh, oh, I'm their friend? I know that Danny was a VIP. He was an influencer in this group. So he held a lot of power and that does weigh in. And so I can see that this is complex. But my experience was outside of Scientology. I'm going to try to protect this person. I'm going to offer to take him home. You can talk to him tomorrow. Sorry. I become assertive and I just think it's probably a trauma response to my own experience. But for a friend especially, I can just say, because I would want that protection for myself. And so I'm going to make sure and I'm willing to argue about it and be assertive. And then back to something that came up later, and I think also with Amanda, I have to listen back to Amanda's experience, but I feel like it might have been some other people around that 
saw that she seemed not right, that might have intervened and helped her, either the bar manager, a bouncer, or something like that. And then that happened later with another Danny Masterson situation in a club where he was ejected from the club because the bouncers caught on to the fact that he was too closely involved with someone that was really incapacitated or saw him actually dose her drink. Like they caught on to him and kicked him out. And they know. They've got the experience. They might even have had training on how to spot that behavior. And thank God. Shouldn't they? That's incredible and important. And on that point, yeah, absolutely, they should. And I know that in Australia, so this is a recent intervention, and I think in the UK as well, but they are beginning to train bar staff to recognize the symptoms and also what they should do in that case. And that is so essential. Yes, absolutely. That should be part of the job, 100%. I'm just thinking in terms of a stranger bystander. Like, if I don't know the person at all and they're with other people. The other people are saying that they're my friend. She's saying they're my friend. I probably wouldn't get involved in that case. But what I could do is I could speak to staff. I'm just thinking for people who might see the issue and might recognize it, but they don't know 100% because you don't know. It's just what you've observed, but you can certainly report what you've observed and you can take down details. Maybe you can take down the license plate all this sort of thing. And then you can contact police mm-hmm. about that. And we ask that they do a follow-up check. I'm just trying to think of what could be I would hope solutions. that it would become standard protocol for bouncers and bar managers. I don't know if bartenders can keep up with that type of thing or cocktail servers. That's challenging. You've got obnoxious people everywhere spilling drinks and doing stuff, and you're just trying to get your drinks out and not break things or spill things. But at least for okay. some oversight, that someone cares that you could go to and that there's a process, that there's a system, that this is a flag, this is something that can be reported or said, and that there's a response to it. And that it's not just, oh, get this drunk girl out of here or get this drunk guy out of here. I understand that's the point of least resistance, but I hope it's not. Yeah. What this information does is it means that the victim's not alone. If a crime such as this is perpetrated, then the community can come together in the protection and support of the victim. A victim is often on their own and it's after the fact and they're trying to piece some things together and they don't have anybody who witnessed it. So it creates that community of awareness, I think is really important of if it happens. Obviously, prevention is number one, but it's such an insidious crime. It's not like someone's brandishing a gun and everyone can see it. This is something that is sneakily done. The more that we can be aware, the more that we can protect each other, even strangers, and where we can't directly intervene or protect them, then there are other things that we can do, I believe. Yeah. I think so. Because you've got stranger danger. You've got neighborhood watches. I just feel like there should be something for bars and clubs where you know that people are lowering their inhibitions already by just having a beer or having a glass of wine. And some people have different tolerances than others, but there should be a process, some code words, something. Whether you know someone or not, whether they've had too much to drink or not, whether they're dressed inappropriately or not, there's no way that this is okay. No way. And I personally have seen servers back in the day when I was hanging out with 
musician friends and being out late. I have seen servers in the Seattle area in particular, if a person, but usually a female, was so very drunk that they could barely stand or get a sentence out. If that person was with someone else that was like, oh, I've got it, I'm going to take care of them, look, try to get a straight answer, hopefully, out of the person that seemed incapacitated. Do you know this person? At least try to verify, like, do you know this person or not? And if that response was, no, I don't know him or something like that, then that server sat the person down in the back. It's okay, you're going to stay here. Back then we didn't have Lyft or Uber. So it was like, you're going to stay back here. Is there someone that we can call? Yeah, exactly. Your, you know? Can we get you a cab? But you're not going home with him. And I have yeah. seen that happen. And I have with my friends as well, tried to make sure someone was okay. The bars all closed at the same time, which is a dumb American <laughs> way of doing things. And you've got a bunch of people that are intoxicated on the street trying to get home and you're trying to look out for each other. I think it's all about learning and understanding and being informed about the issues. So just in terms of drug detection, I think early on the information was about rehypnol and that's what it centered around. Now, as we understand the crime more, we understand that there's so many different things that could be used potentially by a perpetrator. So symptomology is very important when you can look at a range of symptoms and that can indicate to you that something's off. Are you going to be able to get a detection kit that is going to be able to detect anything? I think that's near mm -hmm. impossible. And also I think it would probably make it not very affordable. That's a lot of technology that needs to be put into one thing that needs to be readily available, easy to distribute, that's very cheap. Well, how um, incredibly sad that the responsibility now is on the victim to have some sort of protective mechanism to predators just to go out and have a drink. But I saw this thing and it was like it attaches to the back of your cell phone. It sticks on just like one of those pop out things, only it doesn't pop out and you pop the back off and it's got little tablets and you drop it in your drink and it turns blue if some of these drugs are present. Yeah, at least it'll identify some. It's not 100%. But I think as well, the main thing too is just being informed and aware. And so back to your point of saying, okay, this is on the victims. But if what we need to do is reframe our understanding of what is a safe space, because we have to understand that a bar is not a safe space. And we thought that it was, and it should be. But if we're looking at the Serengeti, are we going to send a man or a woman out there to just wander around amongst wild lions and predators? We're going to send them out not armed. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So we need to change our perspective on what is a safe space and understand that even in a bar, even when we have a few people there that we know that this really still is the wilderness. And so you can't go out unarmed, essentially. You have to go out with your wits about you. And we really need to move away from this, oh, dangerous places are only dark alleyways, because that's not true. A dangerous place can be in a bar, unfortunately, and it shouldn't be that way. In an ideal world, there wouldn't be those perpetrators, but we cannot assume that they're not there. So you have to be prepared to protect yourself. And that's not to make everyone frightened about every single situation. Like, I hate the idea that we have to be paranoid, but I don't think it's a paranoia. It's what you're saying. It's preparedness. It's having an awareness, using yeah. those innate kind of internal signals that we denied in Scientology, getting back in connection with our brain, body, 
whatever the hell you keep teaching me and I keep forgetting the name of. Our brain-body connection, which really is our intuition. So that gut feeling, that is so important. You'll have that registering. If you are completely disconnected from those sensations in your body, which is what Scientology does to you, and there's whole other topics that we could really just even segue straight into from here. But for the purpose of this episode, we won't do that. But yes, so that's really important in early detection of something's off. And the reason I'm saying that is because it's helpful to someone to get away. And this is something that we teach to children to say that something's off, something's not right. Basically, it's a body's alert system and it's activated off of what you're perceiving, what you're sensing, and your body's telling you this isn't safe. This whole alarm system, it's a great system and it's there for a reason and we need to pay attention to it. Our brain is pulling in data from our surroundings constantly and from facial expressions and from the things that we're hearing and what we're observing. To be really in tune with that is really important. 100%. Yeah, and we have to remember again that 85% of sexual assault is done by a perpetrator known to the victim. So that's really going to narrow down what you perceive as your safe space, right? It's just not the stranger down the alleyway that's going to do it to you. It may even be your mate who's taking you home because you don't feel well or you feel sick or you've had too much to drink. Maybe you even just get intoxicated. There's plenty of instances of that. Okay, so one of the things that I really wanted to stress on that came through from Forenza's testimony here is that this inconsistent symptomology with what you knew to have consumed. So a good indicator that your drink was spiked is if the symptoms are not consistent with what you knew to have consumed. We can have some thoughts maybe as we're coming out of this, and I know I did, where I was like, oh, maybe this happened because I drank too much. But in actual fact, years later when I looked at it, I was like, oh, I can remember everything up until that one drink. And then I'm blacked out for hours. And it doesn't make any sense. I've never experienced that ever. And yes, I'd had some drinks, but I could tell you every single thing that happened. I was not experiencing any blackout until he gave me that drink. I was not experiencing any of these other symptoms. So a good indicator that your drink was spiked is if the symptoms are not consistent with what you knew to have consumed. So in Australia, it's estimated that drink spiking occurs three to 4,000 times a year. And in the United States, a recent survey was conducted by Alcohol.org for American Addiction Centers to better understand the prevalence of drink spiking. Of 969 people surveyed, 44% of men and 56% of women said that they had unknowingly consumed spiked food or drinks. Out of those people, 37% had drinks or food spiked multiple times. Alcohol.org. They've done some really great graphs following from that survey. And one thing that they identified was that most of these incidents occurred at a house party. I thought that was interesting because Jane Doe one, it occurred to her at a house party. And a house party is, again, it's another kind of safe Mm -hmm. space, right? Because Yes, like a house party is generally a lot of people that you actually know, generally speaking, or uh, that you're associated with, that you have some connection with through something or someone. So a house party does tend to seem to be more of a safe space. But most of these incidents occurred at a house party. And my second experience was at a house party. Yeah, I was thinking also about the United States culture at colleges with 
over drinking and Shit. spiking food or drinks, even just as a prank or someone thinking that it would be funny to see what would happen to people if they drug them without their knowledge. A large amount of those incidents happened through college. I'm not surprised. Yeah. Okay. Though it seems that these crimes continue to be committed at a prolific rate, we don't see a proportionate number of charges and convictions. Not only is sexual assault the least reported crime statistically, but we have the added complexity of the use of drugs, which can affect levels of consciousness and cause amnesia. So you wake up and you don't know quite what happened or can't put all the pieces together. There are links missing in your memory of the chain of events that took place. Yeah. Which I think we heard from some of the Jane Does was just the confusion of not understanding why they felt the way they felt and what had happened. Yeah. Back to that, a good indicator that your drink was spiked is that the symptoms are not consistent with what you knew to have consumed. That applies to every single one of them. One of the reasons that's so important, that's why I want to drill that home, is because early identification is really important. If you go, okay, was it consistent? It's a really good way you can just self-test and you're like, okay, I have identified that this is what happened. Because for me, the next morning when I came to and I was running out of there, I was just like bolting. I wasn't processing all the things and I just was like escape, escape, exit. That was all. I just had my eyes and my brain on the exit and that was it. And the quicker I could get out, the better. But if I was armed with some information, okay, I'm going to get his room number. I'm going to get his apartment number. I'm going to know what level he's on in that high rise apartment. I'm going to know what building that is. So I'm going to maybe be more aware to write down some details because I understand more about what's taken place. And then in the case of a friend, maybe you could ask for more information more immediately, get some more facts. And then that way, if that person chooses to file a police report, then it's more likely that the perpetrator will get caught. Right. I think because of the amnesia and because of the blackout memories and that kind of thing, we don't recognize that early enough. And by the time we realize what's happened, all that information right. is gone. Not to mention that you only have us, like what you know? up to five days to test. Yeah. Yeah, good point. And dependent on the drug because some windows are smaller. Again, that's why this testimony was so important because we don't need them to produce a positive test for something. If we understand that the symptoms that they've talked about are inconsistent with what right. they've consumed. That is the test. And I think in hopefully preventing the assault to begin with, if someone is feeling symptoms inconsistent with what they've consumed, is to not try to explain it away and vocalize that to someone immediately. I don't feel good or whatever that may be. Something's wrong yeah. before you become incapacitated and it's too late. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. Or even then as a friend observing that, okay, half hour mm -hmm. ago, she was fine. Sure, she had a glass right. of red wine, but we drink wine together all the time. We share a bottle and she's never right. fallen over or tripped over like that. Or her eyes are rolling back in her head or she's becoming incoherent or she's having trouble with her breathing. Any of these kind of indicators, she's saying that her vision is going blurry. One of these protective and, and like, solutions that there's an app on your phone. And so it's actually recording and reporting in that app on your phone as well. So that sounds like a useful thing. Now, I don't know that it tests everything, but wouldn't that be interesting if it's logging the fact that you were just drugged? Yeah. Yeah, that's another level. And that's great because technology is going to come along as long as, you know, that people are aware that this is an issue that needs to continue to be addressed because it will. This won't 
That's the thing, guys. I'm trying to be real. It's not going to stop. We can't pull out a law that then prevents this from happening. It just doesn't work that way. Perpetrators are going to still perpetrate the crimes that they want to commit, but we really need to protect ourselves and protect each other. Yes. There's going to be predators. They're going to have opportunities. And there's some things that victims can do to try and protect themselves. And and then there's some things that people that care about victims can do to help protect them. So really, there's several roles here. Yeah. Yeah. It's a village. It's like a village. And it's a herd, right? It's herd protection. We've all worked together. We look out for our friends when we're on a night out. And I'm putting that in that context of on a night out. It doesn't even have to occur on a night out. It could be at breakfast. You know what I mean? Apparently, it can it be, be at uh, a... La Poubelle when you're having dinner with your boyfriend, which right. is, I didn't realize that was right across yeah. from Cece, for God's sakes. Ew. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, there's a bar restaurant that has just changed hands over and I over. I can picture it. And over yeah. again throughout all over. of our years at Cece. Apparently, it's now La Poubelle. So here are the things that we're going to continue to do. We're going to be informative about these issues. We're going to encourage people to talk to each other and share their own stories so that we can connect to each other and change our culture. And we're going to encourage people to reach out for and get support as needed. It's never too late. And I do want to really stress that. I'm speaking to a girlfriend of mine recently and something that took place years ago. It's never too late to address it or talk about these things or even if someone chooses to, to report to police. And that is another thing that we're going to be doing is encouraging reporting to police. Now, just on that note about reporting to the police, it's going to be a personal choice anyways by the victim because they're going to be the ones that have to follow through and pursue it. Is reporting to the police going to change the rate of the perpetration of these crimes? I believe in the long run, it will have an effect. It does take a long time for these cases to make it to court, unfortunately. But I do believe it's worthwhile. If you do want to do it, if you choose to do it, it's worthwhile. It could make a difference. The thing is that we're not seeing these cases in a proportionate number to the rate that it occurs. We're not seeing these perpetrators held to task, put on trial and convicted. We're just not seeing that. We have seen a small number of high profile cases, celebrities, but we're not seeing the thousands of people who do this year to year. We're just not seeing that proportionately in the justice system. And that's unfortunate. But then how do we change that? We can change it at least by reporting the crime. And we can then hope that some of these cases do make it forward and that there are more convictions and that people realize that's something that I hope from the Danny Masterson case, because he's such a known personality of this kind of young, I guess, fun maybe kind of personality that he's portrayed on that 70s show is the character that he's most well known for. And I hope that this does send a message out to young people because this crime is actually perpetrated most often amongst young people. That's why I wish that this was in the media a whole lot more because this could be really important. This could really make some changes and affect the way that people think about these things. But we can maybe make a difference by reporting to the police. If this happens to somebody, the more informed they are, 
the quicker that they can act to one, protect themselves, but then to be able to report it. And I think reporting it, it doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be enough evidence or that the prosecutor is going to feel that there's enough evidence that they can go to trial or they can go after that person. But even just filing the report on the perpetrator, it still is creating some kind of a record that if something happens again, hopefully not, but if something were to happen again to someone else, there's that history there that will make it much easier for the prosecutor to then go forward with going after that person to put a stop to it. Absolutely. It's on record that this has been reported before. This crime tends to be a multiple victim type of crime where it doesn't tend to be a one-off. Certainly in the cases that are well known, they are not one-off. They had several victims. So the reason I'm mentioning that is because it does then become important. These are all pieces of the story. So if perhaps your own case doesn't go to trial, it may still help police understand the serious nature of the perpetrator. Every piece paints the story. It it helps to tell the story. What happened? Be informed. Yeah. Encourage people to talk to each other. Reach out for support. Report to police. Simple. Powerful. Yeah. And we'll get somewhere. Yeah. Danny, thank you so much for joining us today once again. What a pleasure. It's been so lovely chatting with you in detail about these issues and the testimony that we've covered today. I know that we're going to be looking to chat to you in the future at some stage to understand more about your own story. And we haven't even gotten into that yet. So we would absolutely love for you to come back, please. And we would love to talk to you more about your experience growing up in Scientology. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you for having me. This was a really good topic for me to think about outside of the trial itself, just the subject of the awareness of keeping myself safe and other people safe. So I appreciate it. We all have someone that we care about that we want to protect from all of this stuff besides ourselves. Yeah, this is all just such good information. And I really love comparing and contrasting with you guys. This has been lots of great information, but a lot of details that could be really hard to digest, especially if you are a survivor of abuse as well. So please remember to check in with yourselves. For more information, support, and advice regarding sexual assault, the largest national helpline in the U.S. is RAINN. That's R-A-I-N-N. Their website is www.rainn.org. You can speak with the trained staff member via the online chat or call their free helpline, 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. We're just so happy and appreciative of anyone that is listening because this is really meant to be a part of community. And we're here all together, so we're very appreciative as you're a part of our village. So thank you so much.